The ecclesia doesn't quite roll off your tongue the way some words do, but I chose to call this the ecclesia because when we use the word church, there's, the word has a lot of baggage. And sometimes there's pain, there's confusion, there's many different ideas that are associated with the word church. And we all have different experiences, and we come to this room today with those experiences uh, before us. And so I ask as we go through the passage today that you may be open to seeing church through a different lens. Through a lens that, uh, at least it's my aim, that is more biblical than some of the things we've come across in our life. Today our passage is Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. If you're using a blue Bible, it's on page 1012. Uh, Next week, uh, our passage will be in Acts chapter 20. Write that down in your worship guide and please read through that passage, meditate on it a little bit in the week ahead. And we will jump into that passage uh, next week. I'm going to read the first four words of Acts 6.1 and then I'll stop there for a moment before reading the passage. Now in these days... The study we're doing right now is a bit different from 1 John and and Mark, where we always did the passage after the one we covered last week. And so, a little bit of context can be helpful to know what's going on. So what's going on in Acts 6-1, now in these days? The book of Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament. The first four all record the life of Jesus, and they all end with Jesus very near, either he already has ascended to the Father or very near to his ascension, where he rises up and ascends, he goes up into heaven. And his work on earth is done until he returns a second time that is yet to be. Well, the book of Acts starts right there. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascends. We get the, the record of that taking place again. He ascends up to God. And there's 120 people that are following him. Okay, so you've got 120 people. And they're doing what Jesus said. Jesus told them to wait for the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send him to you. So they're there waiting. And uh, the Jewish festival of Pentecost comes, and God fulfills his promise, and God sends the Holy Spirit. Peter preaches the gospel. 3,000 people believe. Some of these people are foreigners who are just in time for the festival, and then they go back home after the festival. But we're left a couple thousand people in Jerusalem, probably, that know Jesus and love him and want to worship him. And we're in the very early days of the church. And what we see between Acts 3.1 and Acts 6.1 is incredible and rapid growth in the church. Acts chapter 4 verse 4 says that there are now 5,000 men who believed. That did not count women and children who believed. In Acts 4.28 it says the believers were filled with the Holy Spirit. They spoke the gospel with boldness. 
In Acts chapter 4 and 5, there's persecution and the leaders are suffering greatly because of what they're telling people about Jesus. And one of the things that we learn in these chapters before we get to Acts 6-1 that we don't really know living in a nation with freedom like we have today is that persecution often serves the purpose of spreading the gospel. And persecution has a way of purifying the church and making God's word go forth. Persecuted believers don't want you to pray, and I've read articles on this, interviews, things like that. Persecuted believers don't want you to pray that the persecution will go away. They want you to pray that they will stand and be faithful until the end. If you want to know where that comes from, read the book of Revelation. So we're in a season, there's been recently, there's been persecution. We get to Acts chapter 5, 14, and it says, More than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. So the church is changing quickly. And I'm not sure how much time passed between the time that uh, the Spirit was sent and 3,000 people got saved in Acts chapter 6. It might have been a few weeks. It might have been a few months. I, I have no idea. Can't tell. The Bible doesn't tell us. But what I'd like to do with you right now is read verses 1 through 7 of Acts 6. And then we will transition to our discussion. Follow along with me if you would. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmen, Parmenas, I don't claim to pronounce these correctly, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So you, I've tried to make you familiar with the setting, the context of this passage. We just read these seven verses. In our discussions, focus on question number one. Start there. What does the passage say? Then move on to questions two and three. What does it mean? And how do we obey? And when you think about questions two and three, ask yourself, another way of asking that, those questions about this passage, how does this passage affect how we think about service and leadership and also social engagement or charity work within the church? How does this passage make us think about leadership and service and, and mercy ministries and serving the poor and serving widows and serving people who have no means to support themselves? How are we forced to think about that from this passage? Take a few minutes to read to yourself, and when the time is right, your table leader will begin the discussion. So there was a complaint. How many of you have ever been in church where someone complained? So today is all about those complainers. No, not really. You'll hear how I feel about complaints in a moment. Let's read in verse 1. 
In these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So we've already seen what was going on in these days. The disciples were increasing in number. The church was growing. Thousands of Jesus followers in Jerusalem. And, and there becomes this complaint. We live in a day and age where there are many critical spirits. Overly critical spirits. If you know me well, you know that I believe in criticism. You know that I believe criticism is a good thing. You know that I believe we should question things sometimes. And some things need to be questioned. And sometimes when you question things, those things need to be overturned. And we need to figure out a different way to do it. There is a healthy form of criticism. And there is a time when criticism is right. And in this verse, people were being neglected. There was a real situation that needed to be changed. Something was broken. It needed to be fixed. And it was right that there was a complaint. It was right that someone spoke up. What we see in this verse is different from what we often see in social media and just in our culture. Some of the outrage and some of the polarization that should not be there. Some of it should be, but some of it should not be. But when we have a critical spirit that is based on our opinions, we can tear people apart sometimes. But what was going on here? was not that. It wasn't that. There, was, there were widows in the church. And there were Hellenists, and then there were Hebrews. What are Hellenists? Okay, the, word, the, the, the term Hellenist comes from the Greek culture. And in this day, the Roman Empire was in charge. But before the Roman Empire rose to power, the, the Greek Empire was in place. Well, when the Roman Empire came in, Greek culture remained. The Greeks just weren't in charge, but they were still the dominant cultural influence. And here in Jerusalem, in the early days of the church, we have a group of widows who have no way of supporting themselves, who are being cared for by the church, who all of a sudden were being overlooked. And those were the Hellenists. The Hellenists were most likely, um, uh, they, they had most likely lived other places outside of Jerusalem. They had a different accent. They may have spoken a different language at times, and they just kind of had a different outlook on life. It's kind of like the difference between, um, you know, living in Philadelphia or New York or Houston and Gates County. There's just different outlooks, right? And, and one outlook has its own advantages and its own disadvantages, and the other outlook does too. It's not that one is better than the other. They're just different. And here... We see diversity in the body of Christ. Let me tell you, that will always be the case. And that is God's good plan for the church. So this church, there were racial or ethnic language and cultural issues that were present. Now we don't know the reason, the scripture does not say why they were being overlooked. It could have been, and, and this is, in my experience, when I've heard others talk about this passage, we assume that there was favoritism involved. 
well, we like this group better, so we're just, you know, we're just going to kind of stay away from them because they're on the wrong side of the tracks. That could have been the case. The scripture does not say that that is what's going on. Favoritism is condemned by James and other places in scripture, but we don't know that this was favoritism. It might have been some well-meaning people giving it everything they got, but they, there just weren't enough hours in the day. There just weren't enough resources to get it all done. And something, you know, you keep putting food on the plate. What happens to some of the food? But you don't always decide which part falls off, do you? And we know what that's like. For life to get so crazy, to get so hectic, that, that we neglect something that we should not neglect. That may have been what's going on here. We don't know. And so widows were being served by the church because it is Christian teaching. And I think they were better at it in these days than we are today. That Christians take care of widows. That Christians take care of the poor. That Christians take care of disabled or disadvantaged. People who don't have the opportunity to care for themselves. So we have a complaint. We've got an issue. What did the disciples do? And keep in mind that this time the the apostles are kind of acting as pastors and shepherds. They are not being sent out, bouncing around from place to place, starting churches yet. They're leading the church together here. So that they, they, uh, they, they kind of function as the office of elder, which we're going to look into in the next few weeks. So verses 2 and 3 and 4. The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Last week, we learned about the keys of the kingdom of heaven. We saw that both the leaders in the church and the church family members have responsibility, that God has delegated authority and responsibility to bind and to loose, to permit and to forbid. And he gave to Peter specifically, and I believe the apostles and church leaders that follow, particularly the office of elder most likely, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. So there was a problem. You know what they did? They exercised authority and responsibility, and they made a decision to fix the problem. And here's how they did it. They called the entire church together, it says. Beginning of verse 2, they summoned the full number of the disciples. First church business meeting. How many of y'all just really look forward to church business meetings? I've been to churches where they have them once a month or every quarter, and nobody looks forward to them unless somebody's got an axe to grind. So, so I'm sure there are healthy ones out there somewhere. I just haven't been a part of them. So, but that doesn't mean they're bad. That doesn't mean you shouldn't have them. So they came together, the first church business meeting, and things had to change. Let me, how, how do y'all like change? We're acquainted with that here. We believe that God gave us a vision and we changed many things. So we can do change. I've had seven kids and 12 years of marriage. I know what it's like to have change. My older children know what it's like to have change. It's a part of life. But the church is changing. I believe that a healthy church will always be changing. Regularly. Constantly. That doesn't mean that we're going to change like we did last year. It doesn't mean we're going to make that big a huge change every year. All I mean by this is that a healthy church probably should be a growing church. And in a growing church... 
if you're a church family that loves each other, then you need to be a church family that's expecting guests, as my father-in-law challenged us to do four or five years ago. And let me tell you, you all do that really well. You do that really, really well. And it's a beautiful thing. But I believe a healthy church is always changing. I believe there will most likely be an element of growth. And if a healthy church is not reaching people at a time for whatever reason, then I believe that the church is going to be changing because the people are going to be growing in Christ. And whenever someone's growing in Christ, there will be change. I believe that change is inevitable. And just as God changes us day to day, week by week, year by year, as we mature in Christ, I believe that we see that at the corporate level also regularly. I see, believe that we see that in this gathering. So the disciples called everyone together, and here's what they said. They, they, they took charge. They exercised authority. It is not right, they said, that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. They started this off by saying it is not right. Sometimes to not change would be wrong. It can be sin to not change. The disciples decided to initiate, or the apostles decided to create something new. And for them, in this moment, and every situation is different, but for them in this moment, to not create something new would have been wrong. And one of the things I kind of want to just shout from the rooftops to the churches in our community is to continue to do things, usually to continue to do things the same way that we've always done them many times is sin. Not every time, but many times it is sin. So they said it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. What we see from verses 2, 3, and 4 is that the apostles, their primary responsibility was that they were teaching the word of God. They were bringing the word of God to, to, to people who had not heard the gospel. And they were also teaching uh, the rest of the disciples how to follow Jesus. Acts chapter 2, verse 44, 45, 46, somewhere it says, in there says, it says that all the disciples devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So they were very much involved in the ministry of the Word of God, and for them it would have been wrong to go serve tables. Does that mean that they were above or beyond someone who serves tables? Does that mean that they were more important than someone who serves tables? Does that mean that God loves them more than they love the church janitor? It doesn't mean that at all. What it means is that God has given different gifts to people, and He's assigned certain roles or responsibilities to some that He has not uh, given to others. And the wisdom of these disciples, they knew their role. Sometimes we have to not do something that is good so that we can do something different that is good that God has specifically for us. And God is not calling any single one of us to operate in all the gifts or to take on all of the responsibilities. And so they were not going to go and serve tables. What they're doing here is they are delegating responsibility. God is very much concerned about temporary needs, physical needs. These are dear to him and precious to him. His only mission is not just to save souls. I believe that is very much at the heart of it. But I believe that he is redeeming all of creation and we are a part of that. And because his concern 
is for all of creation, we should be concerned about the hungry kid and the hungry widow. And the hungry man, too, for that matter. We should be concerned about them. The church has a responsibility to bring provision and development to people who are unable to help themselves for whatever reason it might be. The church needed a system to take care of these needs. Here at Hope Fellowship, we have a food ministry. A few of us will get together. It's once a month. It's actually tomorrow. But we need more. Not what? Oh, thank you for saying that. All right. Next week. Thank you, Dwight. We have, but, but we need more than that. But it requires servants. It requires resources to serve our community the way that God wants us to. I don't think I've ever been a part of a church that does a really fantastic job at this type of ministry. But I want Hope Fellowship to do this really, really well one day. And I got a feeling, I'm pretty certain of this, that I am not going to be the brains of it. I'm not going to have the great ideas. It might be one of you sitting here. It might be someone who's usually here that's not here today, or it might be someone who's drunk and hung over right now who's going to get saved in two weeks. Okay? This is a part of what God wants us to do here. I believe it with all my heart. So... Moving on to verse 3. Well, verse 2, they say what's not right. Verse 3, they begin presenting the solution. And what they do is they give people a voice in the solution. They give responsibility to people. They did not want the people to be passive. We learn a lot about leadership from, these, from verse 3 and 4. But they said to the people, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. Good repute just means make sure, you have a good re- make sure they have a good reputation. Full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, and we will appoint to this duty. So the disciples, um, the, the, the followers, had to pick out the people who would serve. But the apostles had the oversight or the authority to appoint them. So, we see here several keys of good leadership. We see in the, the verse 3 and verse 4, we see uh, several things that must be done if effective change is going to be brought to a community or to an organization. First of all, when there's a complaint or problem, the leaders did not run. If you lead something currently or if you are leading something in the future, you must not run when there is a complaint. God has put you there. And he will take you through it. Secondly, they could have done this. And we see this happen today. They did not look the other way and pretend like there was not a problem. Thirdly, these leaders, they were good listeners. Fourthly, these leaders let the people have a say in the solution. But what they did was they placed boundaries on how far the people could go. Choose the people... But don't just choose anyone. They need the Holy Spirit and they need wisdom in order to do this job right. And they, if they're going to be working with other people, then they should have a good reputation, is what they said. So there were three qualifications given here. Elders and deacons in the church have qualifications. Read 1 Timothy chapter 3. Elders must be this. Deacons must be that. And I believe that what we see in these verses is the beginning of the ministry of deacons. Even though the word is not there, you can make a strong case 
for that. So the leaders let the people have a say in the solution, but they place boundaries on how far the people could go. Church members should have a voice in what goes on in the church and also in who leads them. Another leadership point, well, I've already said this, the leaders had the final say. They did the appointing, verse 3 says. And that implies that they could have said no. Veto power existed. If someone would have, if the group would have chosen people that didn't meet the qualifications, they would, we could say, no, that young man is not ready yet for that. So the disciples had a problem. They wanted to build unity. They wanted to bring a solution. They wanted fairness. They wanted people to be treated right and taken care of. How did they do that? They did it with a healthy system. It required management. It required administration. How many of y'all know that our God is a God of order? He is a God of management. Okay? I don't like CEO models of doing church, but we can't throw out the word management, the word steward, which is all over the Bible. Actually, it just means to manage. There has to be management within the church if we are going to do things in our community and if we are going to be able to facilitate growth within our own church. In this, we see that there is an organizational or institutional element of the church. And there are times when systems need to be set up to maintain order. There are times when systems need to be set up and we all need to abide by these systems to prevent chaos. There are times when systems need to be set up and these systems, when effectively followed, will minimize division within the church. Management is often necessary. And people have to be qualified and have certain skills to lead and serve. And sometimes within the church, titles and um, offices or positions will exist. And that is okay. I believe what we see going on in verses 3 and 4 is kind of two different offices being created here. The, The apostles or shepherds or elders, I'll call them, pastors, they, their responsibility was to be handling the word of God with an extra focus on prayer. And here they are creating what I believe is a group of deacons, which deacon is just a, a, a term that means service. And these deacons were in charge of overseeing the service ministry, a particular aspect of service ministry within the church. Most of us have been a part of a church where there's a board of deacons and they don't operate this way. Okay, There's a lot of uh, deacon boards that do not operate according to scripture, even here in our community, even within minutes of us today. Moving on to verse 5. Here's how the people responded. What they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. How did the people respond to their leaders? The people were pleased with the solution that they gave. And I think one of the reasons they were probably pleased is because they had a say-so in it. They got to say, they got to be a part of the solution. What's beautiful about this verse is that the people actually did what they were supposed to do. Because it's easy to go with a complaint, and then when it's your time to do something about it, the temptation is to be passive. The temptation is to not want to do anything even if you're asked to do something. 
But that passivity can often just cloak, or it can often be a sign of, of deeper problems within. If someone wants to bring up problems, but they're unwilling to do anything about it, then this is not good. This is not healthy. The people, they did not dilly-dally. They were not passive. They weren't sitting around pointing fingers, unwilling to do anything about the problem, but they were part of the solution. So we get to verse 6. And they set these seven men before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. Let me say one more thing in verse 5 before getting to verse 6. The first two men that are mentioned is Stephen, and it says he's a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and then it talks about Philip. In Acts chapter 7, and at the end of 6, we see Stephen doing ministry that was way beyond that of, of what these servants were responsible for. In Acts chapter, and it cost him his life. In Acts chapter 8, we see Philip doing ministry that was way beyond the responsibilities of what he was delegated here in Acts chapter 6. This type of servanthood, this type of deacon ministry, for some, is part of the process in stepping into the role of becoming an elder or a shepherd. But for some, it's not. It doesn't have to be. You don't become a deacon just so you can get to the real ministry of being an elder. That's wrong. We are not to have that attitude. But what we do recognize is some who become deacons will become elders, and some will not. For me, as an elder of this church, and I'm going to talk a lot more about my views on elder and pastoring next week, but for me as an elder of this church, I know that I have to spend a certain amount of time every week in prayer and in the ministry of the Word. I am not afraid to change a faucet. I've done it. I'm not afraid to do some of this and do some of that, but I know that there are many things that I could do that would distract me from my particular assignment from God. God doesn't love me any better because I do what I'm doing right this minute. But this is just the task that God has given me. When I have the opportunity to go beyond this, I'd like to and I enjoy that. But when I don't have the opportunity, I say no. And part of knowing the role that God has given you is being able to say no so that you can say yes to something else. We give uh, some, you know, there are like little yeah. I heard a pastor say it like this one time. There are little yeses and then there are big yeses. And, and sometimes we fill our life with so many little yeses that we don't have space for the big yes. And what we need to do is make some of those little yeses, little noes, so that we can make more space for whatever the particular thing is that God has given to you. So in verse 6, they set these seven men before the apostles. They prayed and laid their hands on them, laying on of hands. There's, there's several meanings to it, but they, what they were doing is they were commissioning them for this service. They were setting them apart, and they prayed because they knew that these seven men would fail if they did not pray. If God was not in what was happening, it was going to be failure. The widows would continue to be neglected. And dysfunction, division, discord would creep into the church. And look what's going on in verse 7. The same thing that's been happening in the first five chapters of the book. The same thing that was happening in verse 1. 
the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. I believe that the church can multiply in this nation. It is happening in other nations. There's rock-solid proof and evidence to confirm that. I've never seen it myself. I've never been a part of it myself. But what God wants to do here is He wants to add people to the church regularly because of what we're doing and because of His love for them and His work in their lives. But not only does He want to add, I believe that there can be a movement of multiplication that reaches more people than what we could ever imagine. And I am asking God to do that. And one of the ways that that happens is when church leaders do what they're supposed to do and when church members do what they're supposed to do and and we all fix these problems together and when we all work together and when we have conversations together and when we listen to each other together. It almost sounds like a family, doesn't it? When we do this together, when the church is healthy, I believe that the word of the Lord will go forth and those that belong to God will be saved The number of disciples will multiply greatly in Gates County and in regions beyond. That's what the Word of God does. The Word of God changes people. Have you been changed by the Word of God? There is no doubt in my mind that many of this room and many in this church have been. But have you been changed by the Word of God? Have you been changed by the simple message That God loved the world so much that He sent His one and only Son that whoever would believe in Him will not perish but will have eternal life. Do you believe that? If you do, our Lord Jesus is in you and He is changing you and He is transforming you and He has made you His child and He calls you to be a part of the church. So let us continue in faith in Jesus. Let us Work together to be a healthy church. And let each of us do our part as God has assigned us to do.